Good morning, everybody. How's everybody feeling today? Okay, so uh, last week was Easter, and Gary talked about the resurrection. Now, in my memory, I think Gary is the one who started a couple of years ago really pointing out the fact that as he read through the Bible, the resurrection was talked about a lot more than what we were talking about it. And he began to just kind of throw it out there, guys, maybe there's some more to this than what we thought. Maybe there's something deeper about the resurrection that we ought to look at. I mean, why else would it be such a popular topic and at the center of so much of the preaching in the New Testament? And so I began to look, and Gary began to look, and we began to talk, and we began to study this out a little bit more. Turns out he was right. There's a whole lot to the resurrection that maybe you don't get at first blush. We all know that Jesus was brought up out of the grave and that it was a turning point for humanity, but sometimes the why of that is, is maybe not as clear to us. So what we wanted to do is we wanted to come up with, I think it was Gary's idea, to come up with a, a lesson series on the resurrection. He thought this would be a great idea, and then he handed it off to me, which probably wasn't the best idea that he's ever had, but he gave it to me, and we're calling it the resurrection effect. We want to look at what the effect of the resurrection is on our lives today. What's the resurrection about? How is this a practical thing for us to understand? How can it move us and change us and bring us closer to God? So, in an effort to try to do this, I want to start you off by looking at a passage from the Apostle Paul. It's out of Philippians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. Now, Paul is talking about several different things here, but he makes some references that caught my attention he says that he wants to know Jesus. He wants to, now, he had met Jesus. You remember that? He got knocked off his, his mule. He spent three years in Arabia. He got several visions from Jesus. Jesus talked to Paul. But he says, I really want to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that, so that, I can attain to the resurrection from the dead. That verse is loaded with all kinds of things that we could take out and, and, and explore. If you come to Scripture with good questions, you walk away sometimes with better answers than what you can imagine. But I'm going to ask one question and try to explore it this morning with you. And what the question is, is what is this power of his resurrection that Paul's talking about? What is the power of the resurrection and how can we know it? By the way, you notice that Paul doesn't say he wants to know more about it. Paul knew all about the resurrection, right? What do you think he means by I want to know the power of his resurrection? See, I think there's something that we can know more about the power of the resurrection. As I've studied this over the years, what I've come to conclude is that the power of the resurrection is the power to restore. The power of the resurrection is the power to restore. See, I think what I'm finding in Scripture as I study it is that at the heart of resurrection is restoration. And as I, as I look at this, I think about the, how we need to be restored. How many of you guys feel stuck in the past? Held back by hang-ups, hurts. Most of us, if we're being honest, which is, I don't know if we really want to do that here, but if we wanted to be honest, 
Probably most of us understand what it's like to be stuck in the past and really wanting to start over, wanting to have a fresh start. And sometimes it really seems impossible, isn't it? Doesn't it? And it's the resurrection power gives us a chance to start over. It gives us a new beginning, something that the Bible calls a new creation. That's a significant do-over. That's more than just a mulligan. That's more than just a try again. This is really a fresh start that the power of the resurrection can provide. And it's the power to keep going. How many of you guys like me have decided that it's time to lose weight and get in shape? How many of you guys stayed with it in perpetuity after that? Yeah, me either, man. A couple years ago, I lost about 60 pounds. I found most of them since that time. <laughs> lost them, got them right back. Why is it like that? You know, what about sin? How many of you guys have been trapped in sin? And so you try to be a better person. You try to stop this thing, and willpower only gets you so far. You know why that is? Willpower is kind of like a muscle. If you hold a heavy weight long enough, you may be 10 pounds wouldn't be that heavy to hold. But if you keep it here for a while, what happens? Eventually, the arms begin to sag. And see, when we talk about restoring and starting over and getting a fresh start, isn't that the first thing that comes to your mind? You've been disappointed before. Your willpower just doesn't seem to somehow get it done. See, you need more than willpower. You can live a good life through willpower. But you cannot live the restored life through willpower. You're only going to be able to live the restored life through resurrection power. See, the resurrection power, the power of the resurrection is the power of God to change your life and make it what He wants it to be. I emphasize that because so many times when we talk about restoring and God, we come at it the other way around. We think about God restoring the life that I wanted to have, the way that I want it to be, the way I want it to, uh, the relationships I want with my kids. I'm looking for God to do that. The relationship I want in my marriage, I'm looking for God to restore that. Or with any number of things. But that's not necessarily what God's doing. God's restoring the things that He wants to restore, the way He wants to restore them. I think we need to understand that difference. So how can, here's the second part of that question we started off with, how can you know the power of the resurrection? Not just know more about it. I'm hoping over the next couple of weeks to give you more information about the resurrection, some things I've found in Scripture that are helpful to me, and I hope that they're helpful to you. But if all you do is learn about the power of the resurrection, you're not going to see a whole lot of restoration. In fact, a few years ago, I started to restore my old house. I live in a house that's like 120 years old. It's a really old house. And I decided to, to work on it and restore it. Number one, it didn't happen overnight. And could you imagine if I said, I'm going to restore this, and I pulled out all my tools and I never plugged them in? How far would my restoration project go if I didn't plug in? See, the power of the restoration, or the power of the resurrection is the power that we need to be plugged in if we're going to see real restoration, the kind of restoration that God is working on, the kind of restoration that God is achieving. So I think there are about three that I can identify that I'm going to try to talk about over the next couple of weeks, areas, ways, or maybe a process in which God is restoring things the way that he wanted them. 
the first thing I see that the power of the resurrection is restoring is the relationship God created mankind to have with him. God created man for a reason. And God is restoring, through the power of the resurrection, the relationship that he created mankind to have with him. The second thing I see is that God is restoring the role that he created mankind to fill. It's part of that reason why we were created in the first place. And the third thing that I see through the power of the resurrection that God is restoring is the reality that God created for man to live in with him. So those are my three preacher points because they all start with R. Relationship, role, and reality. And over the next couple of weeks, I'm going to try to take a look at all three of those. But today we're just going to start with that first one, the relationship. What is God restoring? The relation, what does that mean that he's restoring his relationship with mankind? And by the way, restoration of relationship with God does not necessarily mean restoring the relationship to what you want it to be. It means restoring the relationship to what God created it to be. So oftentimes what we see and what we hear from pulpits is talking about what God can do for you. What God can do for you. What's in it for me is what they're appealing to. You've got a problem, let me tell you about your problem, now here's how God can solve it. And there's truth in it, but not all the truth is in there. See, what we can come away with if we're not careful is that God works for us. You listen to Christian radio much? A lot of the songs make it sound like we're just so precious that God would do anything for us. And I know that he views us as precious, and he does love us, and he would do what's within his will and in his nature to do, but we weren't created so that he could worship us. We were created to worship and to serve him. So one of the big things that we've got to restore is we've got to restore the natural created order. Who's really in charge? Who works for who? Who serves who? If we get that backwards, we're going nowhere. It's like putting the blade on your saw in backwards. Have you ever tried to cut with the blade in the wrong direction? That's kind of sporty, and it doesn't really work out too well. We've got to make sure that we get the blade in the right way, and that's going to be starting with understanding that God is restoring things the way that he wants them to be, and we get a chance to be a part of it because of the power of the resurrection. So how is he doing this? How is God restoring our relationship with him. I've only got two steps for you this morning. The first step that I can see that he does or that he's already taken, and this is difficult to talk about for this reason. Let me try to set it up this way. There is what God is doing and has done for mankind. I'm going to come at it from that angle and then try to make the application because these same steps seem to come about individually. Make sense? What is God doing with mankind and what is God doing with me? So where did God start his relationship restoring? The first step was by turning our hearts back to God. Turning our hearts back to God. Now, do you guys remember the story of the Mount of Transfiguration? It's in Matthew 17. What happened there, if you're not as familiar with it, is Jesus took Peter, James, and John up to a mountain in northern Israel, and while they were there, he met, Jesus met with Moses and Elijah. And Jesus was transformed. That's why they call it the Mount of Transfiguration. All of a sudden, he's glowing like a light bulb. Now, Moses was the lawgiver. The law came through Moses. 
and Elijah, he was the chief of the prophets. So what you've got is you've got Jesus meeting with the law and the prophets. There's more there than what I'm going to unpack today. But hopefully I make you curious and you dig into what all that means. But while they're watching this, they get really excited and they see this cloud that covers around Jesus. It was the glory of God. You look at it through the scripture and you'll see that the glory of God is often referred to as a cloud. The glory of God is often referred to as a cloud. Why do I think that rather than just a fog rolled in on the top of a mountain? Because the cloud spoke. And I've been in some thick fog, but it's never talked to me. <laughs> and, this, and what the fog said was, this is my son, listen to him. Listen to him. So now we're going to pick up the story here, as Matthew tells it, starting in verse 9 and going through 13. It says, as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, tell the vision, what you just saw, to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. There was a turning point that was going to happen at the resurrection. We're talking about the power of the resurrection that Paul said later that he wanted to know, come to experience. And his disciples asked him, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? See, there must be something about this restoration that was already on their mind. Something about what God was doing with all of creation that was on their minds for them to ask this question. See, they had read in the scriptures that Elijah would come first. And so they were asking, uh, if you're here, then how did you get here without Elijah coming? Or explain this to us. So Jesus said, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah already came. And that they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they wished. So also the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. See, Jesus identified the Elijah that the prophets had told was going to come as John the Baptist. But that leaves us with a couple of questions. What does it mean that John the Baptist was going to restore all things? And what's my second question? Yeah, how did he do it? <laughs> so that's why I write notes. My mind skips beats. The word restoration is not that difficult to understand in English. Now, the, the, it's difficult to pronounce in Greek. The word that's used there, the word restore, is apokathistemi. Apokathistemi. Say that time, three times fast. And what it means is it means setting things in order or restoring a thing to its former place. It's not a unique word. It's used, I think, about 76 times in the New Testament. And it's always meant to set things in order or to restore something to its natural or its, its, its former state, what it was intended to be. You see it used in places like Matthew 12, verse 13, where Jesus commanded a guy to stretch out his hand. He stretched it out and it was restored to normal like the other. What was Elijah going to do? He was going to restore something to the way it was supposed to be. He was going to set things in order and get them ready to be made right. Well, how did he do that? I think we find out in Luke 1, verse 16 through 17, whenever his parents are getting told about him, it says there, and he will turn the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as the forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is when God started his restoration project. See, in the beginning, God created things, right? Everything that we know, everything in the cosmos. 
And when he was done, he said, it's good. He had a man and a woman made in his image. He had a creation and an environment. It was good. It was the way that he wanted. But it didn't stay that way. It got vandalized. Adam rejected his role, and we'll talk some about that next week. But sin came in, and with it came death. With it came corruption. With it came a curse on people. And the world, even the earth, is under this curse. But God never gave up. God is a good God. I want, I want to make this so plain that you can't miss it. God is a good God. And he is a good creator. A good creator doesn't give up on his creation. God didn't give up on his creation. He always promised, even at, when it all broke down and the curses were there, he said, I'm going to make it right. And he made the first prophecy that we have about Jesus. He's going to restore it to what he had in mind originally. John started the process here by getting people's hearts ready, turning their hearts to the Lord. That's what he did with all mankind, but that's also how it works for us. Our hearts have to start, God starts his restoration. We come to know the restoration power, the resurrection power, and the restoration of relationship with God, first by starting to turn our hearts towards God. Now, that's just where it starts. There is a finish date that's coming. This restoration project will not go on and on forever. I restored my home, parts of it. I thought it was going to go on and on. If you've ever done that, it takes a while sometimes, and you wonder, will this ever get any better? Will we ever get this finished? There's coming a time whenever God's restoration will be finished. It's finally being talked about by Peter in Acts chapter 3. See, Peter had been at the temple, and he healed a guy, and everybody is wowed and impressed. And so Peter starts preaching. And part of his sermon, he says in verses 19 through 21, he says, Now, repent of your sins and turn to God. Turning to God involves repentance. You understand what repentance is, don't you? Repentance is where I change how I think and how I act. It's not just changing how I act. That is the definition of just trying to do willpower. You see that connection? Whenever you're working off of willpower, you haven't really changed how you think. And that's why you fail. That's why I keep gaining weight and getting out of shape. Because I really haven't thought differently about my comfort level. I still like to eat the, the foods that aren't good for me. My doctor was talking to me about that two weeks ago. So I'm back on the diet, trying to repent. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. He says, repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then, then, times of refreshing will come from the presence of the Lord. And he will again send you, Jesus, your appointed Messiah. See, Jesus had been taken up into heaven. He had died for our sins. God had raised him from the dead. He spent all this time with his disciples talking about the kingdom and getting them ready to do the work that he had in mind for them. The restoration of mankind was underway. And then God took him back to heaven and left us with the Holy Spirit, which Jesus called a trade up. Again, more than what we can get into this morning. Verse 21, Peter says, For he, Jesus, must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. The restoration of all of God's creation is underway. It started with mankind. 
it will eventually change the entire reality of where we live. It will change all of creation. And there will be a completion date of it. That completion date will happen whenever Jesus comes back. Where is he now? He's in heaven. Peter says he's there and he has to stay there until it's time for the final restoration of all things. Now this word restoration is again another difficult one to pronounce in Greek. It's apokatastasis. This word is only used once in the New Testament. And apokatastasis is the noun form of that verb apokatistamemi. I just said that badly. I have to look at my notes. It doesn't matter. The other one. Yeah, good luck. Apocatistemi. That's it. Apocatistemi. It seems like there should be another syllable in it. Anyway, in the first one, when he's talking about Elijah restoring, he's talking about a verb, an action that's going on. In this one, whenever Jesus comes back, it's a noun. It'll be finished. Do you catch that? Why do you need to know this? Why do you need to know this? Because every restoration project is a process, isn't it? In fact, I don't know about you, but every restoration project I've ever been involved with, the minute I started, whatever I was working on looked worse than what I began. I remember starting working on this house. Honest to goodness, it just started out, I was going to try to replace a floor in my kitchen. Next thing I knew, I'm ripping out walls and moving doors, moving walls, and I mean, I'm just, I'm into it. There was one point where I was sitting in the dining room and looking around, and there was no color in the house. It was all brown and gray and covered in dust, and there's lab and plaster lab. You ever walk out into one of these old abandoned farmhouses, you walk in, and there's no color in them? It's all dirt and gray and nasty. That was my kitchen and dining room. And I thought, it was better before I started. How many of you, when you became Christians, experienced the same thing? Wow, things have gotten tough. I thought God had saved me from all this stuff and that I was zapped and life was going to be better. I thought I was going to have all these good things happening for me and to me and through me. And things are just getting worse. What what went wrong? Nothing went wrong. That's why you need to know that the restoration of the relationship with God that's done through the power of the resurrection is a process. It has a starting point and it has an ending point. And the ending point is not going to happen until Jesus comes back. So guess what? Between now and then, we are going to be in a constant mode of being restored. God is going to be working on us and resetting us and remaking us and recreating us and transforming us into the image of His Son. Why is that so important? Because if you don't understand that this is a process, you may doubt that you're actually being restored. You may not have any security. You may be thinking, what's wrong with me? Why doesn't God accept me? Am I so bad that, I mean, is he really going to take me home? I'm not being changed fast enough. I guarantee you, whenever I was working on that house, I could not wait for my kitchen to come back online because we ate cold cuts and carryouts for two years, which is probably some of where I got started on this bodybuilding project that I'm keep talking about. Knowing the power of the resurrection starts with repenting and turning towards God. See, knowing is about experiencing. How can you know the power of the resurrection? Experience it. How can you experience the power of the resurrection? 
by experiencing restoration. What's the first step? It's turning your heart to God, repenting of your sins. So i got a question for you in your notes. I hope that you'll circle one of these. You can keep it private. It's just for you, between you and God, for the people that you trust. But have you really repented of your sins? Have you really repented of them? Second question is, has your heart been turned towards God? Has your heart been turned towards God? Yes or no? This will let you know. Your answer to this will, will point you as to whether or not you're being part of this restoration, whether you're experiencing the power of the resurrection. And the choice to experience it comes with saying yes to repenting and turning towards God. In Acts 26, Paul was describing how he preached this very same message to his crowd, and he said it this way. So he was explaining himself. He said that he said that his, the people he talked to should repent and turn to God, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. What does that mean? When restoration starts, you can see it. When you turn your heart and you repent of your sins, you can see it. It looks like something. It looks different. If I had told you back in 08 whenever I decided to remodel my, my house, if I said, yep, I'm going to remodel my house, and you came over in 09, and it looked like it did in 08, would you think that I had really begun to restore anything? No. And yet we have Christians who say, yes, I am saved. Yes, I have accepted Jesus. I've put him on in baptism, and they look the same today as they did. How can that be? That isn't experiencing the power of the restoration, or the power of the resurrection. That isn't restoration. I've even seen people go backwards, make a pledge and allegiance to God, and then get worse. How does that happen? It doesn't happen through what God's got in mind. When restoration begins, you can see it. Can it be seen in you? Can we see a difference? Can people see a difference? Can you see a difference? Second step. How did God start this restoration of his relationship with mankind through the power of the resurrection? Second step was by doing away with the old way of being human. He did away with the old way of being human. What do I mean by that? When Adam and Eve sinned, they changed the nature of mankind. And all of us inherited that image. All of us did. Romans 6, verses 1 through 7. I want to take you through this, do the best I can to try to explain this. Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we going to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. By the way, don't kid yourself into thinking that you're going to not ever sin again. But there is a huge difference, and the Bible is very clear about this. There's a huge difference between tripping, stumbling, and falling into sin and living there. You know, I drive through St. Louis occasionally. I don't take mail there. I live in Alton. Occasionally I still sin, but I'm not happy with it. I'm not okay with continuing on in it. So I struggle, and as often as I, as I fall, you know, I don't want to hurt God's feelings. If you love someone, what do you do when you mess up and you hurt them? You apologize and you try not to do it again, right? 
That's what he's talking about here. He said, how can we just live in sin any longer? And he reasons it this way. He says in verse 3, Or don't you know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Baptism is huge. It's about being baptized into his death. And he says, therefore, if you've been baptized into his death, then you've been buried with him through baptism into death. So that Christ, as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, and I want to key in on this, knowing this, that our old self, now if you would, in your notes, circle old self, because I really want to spend just a little bit of time on this. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, with Jesus, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin, for he who has died is free from sin. See, when you feel like you're stuck, when you feel like you need a fresh start, you're dealing with that old kind of of humanity. You're dealing with what Jesus came to do for us to give us that fresh start, to restore the relationship we have with God. We don't have to be stuck anymore. We've been freed from sin. But to get at this nugget, we've got to deal with this word, self, old self. How do you understand this verse? Before I try to explain it the way I think it should be explained, how do you understand this verse? Most people that I've asked this question, the way that they would answer it is, well... The old me. The old me was crucified with Christ. Now, because of that, my body of sin is... I don't know what that part means. But I know that the old me was crucified with Christ. Is that about where you are? Yeah, okay. Well, that's not what it says in the original language. I'm going to try to pull that apart. Let me tell you the danger of believing what I just gave you. The danger in believing what I just gave you is you come away with the conclusion that there are two selves inside of me. There's the old self and the new self. Which one is winning? How many of you guys know for sure that if you die today, your home is in heaven with Jesus? Know it. Believe it. Trust it. Awesome. I see two hands. I know some of you guys are just not wanting to put your hand in the air this morning. I, I want us to get to the place where all of us that are in Christ Jesus know that we have salvation. Why do we need to know it? If I thought I was up here walking on a tightrope, about ready to fall off at any minute and crash to my death, how would I be walking? I would be very, very tense and tight and I wouldn't be enjoying it at all. But I'm up here in a safe situation, flat, carpeted, lots of room. I can move freely. I don't even have to think about it. Whenever you think of this verse as saying that it was your old self and you've got a new self and they're battling like two dogs, which one's going to win inside you? You make your life in Christ to resemble walking a tightrope, wondering if you're actually going to slip off and fall. And so then you get a diagnosis of cancer. And you begin to wonder... Am I really saved? Am I good enough? And you begin to process it. 
The life in Christ is about so much more than trying not to go to hell. So, is this verse saying something different or am I just making it up? Well, I'm trying not to make anything up. But this old self thing. The word self in Greek is anthropos. Now, I hope I don't wear you guys out with going back to the original Greek language. But folks, I mean, I heard one time someone said, if you've got to, make your, if you've got to go use the Greek to make your, your point, your point isn't a very good one. That is not a very wise statement. You know, we have Caitlin over here who's interpreting into another language what I'm saying in English. And there are not, if you've gone through any of her classes about interpretation, there are not one-for-one equivalents of the words I'm saying to that language. And that's true of most languages. There's a huge difference between like and love. And if I want to understand, if I want, some, if I want to be understood correctly, I better choose the right one for the application, right? Well, the Greek is a very specific language, and we don't have always a great one-for-one word, so we have to choose the nearest close one. Sometimes we have to come up with a couple of words to try to explain what that word was all about. And that's the case with this self that Paul talks about. Paul is the only author in the New Testament who talks about the new self and the old self. He does it about four different times in Scripture. And the Greek word that he uses that gets translated most often as self is the word anthropos. Does that sound like a familiar word to you? Anthropology? What is anthropology? Study of mankind. The word anthropos means humanity, mankind, or man, to represent the whole group. Is self a near equivalent to mankind? Are you going to be communicating the same thing if you're talking about self? Versus mankind changes the meaning of this verse. So let's read it again. Knowing this, and this is all connected to our baptism into his death and into Christ. When that happens, our old humanity, our old mankind was crucified with him. In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. That changes the meaning of that verse, doesn't it? What God has done, whenever God said, I'm not going to let them have access, Adam and Eve, I'm not going to let them have access to the tree of life or else they'll live forever after the sin, as much as anything, I think that was an act of mercy. God wasn't going to let them stay in this vandalized relationship that they had created by bringing in death and sin and corruption. God said, I'm going to restore it to the way that I wanted it. I'm not going to let this last and go on forever. What we're hearing here from Paul is is that God took that old way of being human and nailed it to the cross and did away with it. We were trapped. We had only one way to be human, and it was like Adam. We were trapped in that. But God, through Jesus on the cross, put to death the old way of being human. Do you see how that fits into his restoration process? He's done away with the old way. He's put that old body of sin to death. Guess what's left? A new creation. A new way to be human. It's so important that you walk away understanding this as best you can, because whenever you get a hold of it, if it works for you the way that it did for me, you'll be more serious about sin than you've ever been, and more free and more confident 
in your relationship with God, free to serve him without worrying about going to hell. See, I was a single guy, and while I was dating my wife, I was afraid I would do something stupid. She would see through who I really am and catch on and bolt. And I, <laughs> and I would never be free. Yeah, Paul, you can identify, get a witness there? Yep. But then I got married. And we became one. How many of you guys want to, want to bet that I all of a sudden became the perfect married man after I said I do? Yeah, well, Mike, yeah. There, 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 are, uh, there are classes for you, Mike. <laughs> and, and by the way, you too, Kim. <laughs> Point is, even though I struggled with acting like a single guy after I was married, it didn't mean I wasn't married. Because I had changed that whole union. I became one flesh with a woman. And you know what my friends were saying to me? You're a married man. Act like it. Guess what Paul reasons in all of his writings? You are a new human. Remember he talks about that new self, that new anthropos, that new man? The New King James Version is one of the few that I know that render it new man. You're the new man? Act like it. It's not act like it so you can be the new man. It's act like it because you are the new man. If you get a hold of this, you'll find the freedom to follow wherever Jesus leads. You will still mourn when you stumble, but you won't be worried about falling out of his light. And the question of where you go when you die, be it when you're at your best or at your worst, will be resolved forever. If you hang on to that old definition of self, thinking there's two different dogs inside me, a new self and an old self, battling it out. You're only going to feel good about your relationship with God when your performance justifies your feelings. They call that the performance trap. I don't think any of us should spend our our walk with Christ wondering, are we really in the new man? We don't have to. We can know. It's about all I have time to talk about with that today, but man, it's so important that you get this. So here's the question. Have you repented and turned your heart to God, yes or no? And have you been baptized into Christ Jesus? Have you been baptized into his death? That baptism is being buried with him. Have you done that, yes or no? If yes, then God has already started to restore you. If you can say yes to those questions, then God has already started to restore you. If you can't say yes to those questions, don't leave this building this morning without taking care of it. I've got a worship team practice scheduled for right after we're done here. We're going to do some new music for our celebration. And I will put that on pause and I will baptize you. All you've got to do is believe that Jesus rose from the dead, want to experience that power in your life, want to know it the same way that Paul did, and ready to turn away and die to that old way of being human. You got that down, we're done. Done deal. You're in. You accept his grace. You accept the role that he's created for you. Don't leave the building without having that taken care of. If you want in. If you still want to live in the old life, I I just don't understand why, but go for it. If you want to get up here and jump in the baptistry and get baptized, 
for any other reason other than what we've talked about, I'm not your partner for that. There's nobody to impress. But if you want to die with him and do away with the old way of being human, it's here for anybody and it's here right now. The water's even clean and warm, right, Mike? Yes. God has already started to restore you if you've already done this. So you're in the process. I want to show you one last verse and then I'll wrap it up. It's out of Colossians 3, verses 5 through 10. Paul says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Circle wrath of God in your notes. What is the wrath of God? Is that whenever God wipes out a city with a monsoon? Or earthquake? Lightning? Is AIDS the wrath of God? Is deformity? Is loss? Hurt and pain? Is that the wrath of God? Some preachers would try to persuade you so. Because they use fear to try to guilt you and scare you into obedience. That's not what I think the wrath of God is. In fact, Paul told us about what the wrath of God was in Romans 1. And he said it was something that you could see. See, whenever God starts the restoration process with you, you can see it. And the wrath of God is something that you can see also. What's the wrath of God? Well, Paul said you could see it. And it was in verse 18, and then he defines it in verse 24, 26, and 28. Because he repeats the phrase over and over. So God gave them over. So God gave them over. So God gave them over. The wrath of God is whenever God stops trying to restore you. When you resist Him for so long, you want to be the old kind of human. That God finally says, I'm going to stop trying. And you can see it when it happens. So if you've said no to those questions that come before, you better rethink this. There may get to be a point where you can't repent. There may get to be a point where you're not even able. If you know you're going to die, you're not able. You don't want to be in that category. God is restoring his relationship with all mankind. You want to be a part of that. He goes on and he says in Colossians 3, 7, he says, in them you also walked. All those sins that we just looked at, you once were just like that. You walked like that when you were living in them. Get it? The living in it part again? Whenever you were okay with it and you just kept that sin alive? He says, but now you also put them all aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you have laid aside the old self, the old anthropos, the old mankind, the old way of being human. You've laid it aside if you're in Christ. So you don't act like this anymore. These people over here act like that. Not you. He says, you have put on the new self, the new way of being human the new anthropos, the new mankind, who is being renewed. See the verb, the action? You are being renewed. So don't act like this anymore. You're in Jesus, so act like it. 
You're in the new man. You are a part of the new humanity. Act like it. See the difference? Who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Talk about the ultimate restoration project. God is in the middle of a restoration project, restoring everything he created to what he wanted it to be in the beginning. And he's starting with humanity. He's starting with us, with mankind. And he has put away and done what he's done with the old kind of human. We are not trapped in that anymore. We don't have to be that anymore. We can accept Jesus and experience the power of the resurrection. We can know it. We can have it. So my question as I'm ending this morning is, which kind of human are you today? Which kind of human are you? You one of the old ones or one of the new ones? Circle, the one that fits. If you're one of the old ones, don't leave today. Put this right. Let Jesus have his way. It's not so bad. It's not so bad. My house still needs more restoration. It's a whole lot better to live in now than it was when I started. My life still needs restoration. My life still needs being restored. But it is so much better than it was when I first began. Don't leave here if the answer to that is you're the old one. And if you are the new one, Come back next week because we're going to talk more about how, you, how God's getting on with that restoration project. What do you need to do today to experience the power of restoration? What do you need to do to experience what it's like to know what that power is like? To plug the power tools in so that the work can get done. We're going to try and tackle that a little bit next week when we talk about the role that God had created man for in the beginning and the role that he's restoring us to right now and for in the future. Um, that's it. That's all I've got this morning. Uh, in your bulletins, there's a, a, a card. We call it a communication card. And we allow people to, to write prayer requests on there. If there's something you want a prayer team to pray for you about, that's a good place to communicate that. It's not the only way you can communicate it, but it's just a handy way. If there's something about this lesson that you want to know more about, if you'd like for me to come and explain or talk to you about it, or if you'd like for somebody else to, you can put that on that communication card, and we'll make sure that someone gets to talk to you about this and answer questions as best as we can and help you figure out how to pursue this relationship with God. It's also a time where we, what we'll do is we'll, I'll pray, and we'll sing a final song, and we'll pass you a basket. You can put those communication cards in there. And of our members, uh, we ask our members to actually give to help, Keep this ministry going, keep the lights on and, and the bills paid and that sort of thing. So if you would, bow with me. We'll pray and we'll close it out this morning. Heavenly Father, uh, Father, what you've done is amazing. You know, we're trying to talk about it. We're trying to pull it out and look at it and to understand it. But Father, it's what you've done, already done, and what you're doing now, and that you allow us to be a part of it. Father, I pray that you'll help us to, to think on these things, to roll them over and take them in. I pray that, that the folks that, that have heard this lesson will look at the verses and, and read them in context and really question whether or not I'm telling them what's right. And Father, I pray that your Spirit will work on them through the Word and help them to find your truth. And Father, I pray that you'll, you'll move in this congregation. 
that you'll change us and restore us to what you always wanted us to be so that we can do the work that you've got for us. We want you to get all the glory and all the honor because you certainly deserve it. You deserve all of our love and all of our praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.